Welcome everybody to the AJ Osborne Show, where we focus on our core tenets, impact, freedom, and progress. Join me and others as we grow through education and discussion. Welcome everybody to the AJ Osborne Podcast, and I am so excited about the podcast it, well, I, we kind of already had one. It was We're still going to do this, but we kind of just had a podcast before the podcast. But Cody Sanchez, welcome. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm so excited. Talk biz, do deals. This is like a threefer. Yes, I love it. I get I get way too into this stuff. It's like I, I always tell them, like, this is the greatest game in the world, and I love playing it. It's I love doing deals. I love growing in markets and learning. Um, so it's been great to you know, find out more about you. And, you know, it's funny. I don't actually know if you know the first time um, I, I met you well, it was two years ago. I didn't really meet you. I was in a GoBundance meeting, um, but it was after, uh, so I was, it was after I was paralyzed. So I actually had to go to the hospital. I was in your meeting, you were talking and I was like sitting there and I'm like, man, she's wicked smart. And then I, I had to go to the hospital and because I was speaking at the GoBundance meeting, that was the only reason I was there. So I was in the hospital for like three days. And then I'm like, you got to let me out because I got to go speak. So they weren't going to let me out, but I told them I'm leaving. So they attached the IV bags to my arms and I put a coat on and then I went and spoke at the GoBundance meeting. So I was going to talk to you there, which is kind of funny, but I ended up at the hospital the whole time. So sorry, I didn't get to talk to you, but we're catching up. AJ. The stories that I hear from you astound me. I can only wait as we get to know each other better over the years because I'm already like, this is, I would never have done that. I, would, I might I might cancel if I have like a stubbed toe. Like I love that <laughs> consistent push through. It's wild. But yeah, that was the first time I'd ever heard about you. And uh, you were speaking on a whole bunch of stuff, but I was so impressed with your fundamental knowledge, particularly around like small business and everything, which I, I feel like people lack fundamental, people either have fundamental knowledge or they just can't extrapolate it into the big picture. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, okay, I get the micro stuff, but they have a really hard time connecting all the dots, but they have an even harder time communicating that and showing other people, which you do an exceptional job to explain to people about small business, what's going on, how money works. Um, so I, I commend you. I was very impressed when you were speaking. It was just like, wow, you like, it's not that you just know it, but you communicate it very well. Oh, thank you. Well, I think half the battle is, you know, I've realized in finance that we're really good at making things sound more complicated than they are because then we get to charge two and 20 and, uh -huh. you know, everybody else pays for our supposed intellect. And I think it's similar to medicine, actually. And then I realized that the smartest people I know are ones that can take a complex subject and explain it to a five-year-old. And so I kind of try to do that because I think the only way I can prove to myself I actually know what I'm talking about is to hyper-simplify. And if I can't overly simplify it, I probably don't know it well enough to speak on it. And that's where I get into trouble. And also as a former journalist, so I think that's literally my only skill set is yeah. like I ask pretty decent questions and I take a ton of information and whittle it down pretty quickly to get to the to the truth amongst the noise. So were you in finance before journalism? Which came first? Yeah, the chicken and the egg. The um, journalism was first. So I was a journalist across the U.S.-Mexico border sort of writing about human trafficking and drug smuggling and 
Um, and it was pretty dark, heavy stuff, which is also a great place to start for finance. Cause then when everybody's freaking out about like, you know, little charts on a screen, I'm like, Oh, nobody died. Nobody's being tortured. <laughs> I think we're going to be fine. It's okay. Um, yeah, exactly. But I did learn pretty quickly, like kind of what we were talking about before, just how important understanding money is because life is a game and you will be the perpetual winner if you can understand the rules of the game. And the biggest rule of the game of life, in my opinion, in our world today is like, he who holds the pocketbook has the power and um, and the pocketbook could be lobbying power, the pocketbook could be, you know, power in a corporate sphere. I mean, we've seen during the pandemic who held the power, the large corporations, which is why big businesses got to stay open and tiny ones didn't. And so um, once I was in journalism, I realized, man, nobody really cares about awareness, which is what we do in journalism. It's much better that you go out and you actually can change something with capital money to make a real difference. And so that's why I went into finance was sort of the power of the pen was, was mighty, but I think the power of the checkbook is mightier. I So it's, so funny, this kind of the exact reason that I really got into business and economics. I used to live in Brazil and I lived in Sao Paulo. And Sao Paulo, the, it, the just the difference from poverty, which is actually where I lived. I lived in things called favelas, they're massive ghettos. And the rich was incredible. There's more helicopters there per capita because the rich don't touch the ground. They have taxi helicopters. So we would sit in these favelas that are loud. They're just bricks made and people going, you know, everywhere, um, extreme poverty. And you're looking up and you can see skyscrapers that have pools that are off the sides of them for each of like their tenants. And they circle around the skyscrapers. And I'm like, this is, you know, I, I'd never being from Idaho. I'd never seen or been acquainted with such not only extremes, but what to me was super power and these people that just held. And all of a sudden it just created this curiosity in me that said, there's obviously people that make rules. There's obviously, right, game makers. Who are these people? How do they get there, right? And what's going on? And I, and I just, it was my curiosity was so strong that, and it put in, it put, installed something in me to either I can control the game or I can be a part of that game in a really fundamental way and or I just have to get left with the scraps real or not right or not didn't matter but that was the impression kind of like what you're talking about and I was just so curious after that and I came back to America and it was like I could not stop reading everything about finance about money and how did this happen and who are these people yeah, it's so funny you say that because I've spent a lot of time in Brazil on the same thing. Um, not so much Sao Paulo, which I do love Sao Paulo, but it's it's the disparity slaps you in the face. Yeah, that's for sure. And and also I think um, you know you you don't then underestimate or underappreciate what we have in the U.S. Right? You yeah. come back here and you're like, oh my gosh, like you can actually change social and economic stratospheres. And don't get me wrong, like, are we perfect? No, far from it. But I don't know anywhere else where it's as easy as it is here. Again, it's not easy, but it is easier here than anywhere else to move up the ladder. It's possible. And, um, it's not possible. Yeah. Like, and we, that's, that's and whenever exactly right. you hear people complaining about, oh, we have the problems and we should be like another country. I'm like, have you been to any other countries? Have you ever lived in other countries? You think social mobility is some, like there's some fantasy land where there's this great social mobility? I'm like, no, hands down, this is the best place to have social mobility. I mean, my father came from like extreme poverty in the deserts of Idaho, didn't even have running water, right? And I'm like, 
that would never be possible for those people that lived in the favela of Brazil. It's not. They don't even have an ability to do it where it was for him here. Oh, you're exactly right. I mean, my the reason I got into buying small businesses even was my uncle, Ed, was a sharecropper um, from Arkansas. And he, you know, didn't have running water, had like six or seven different siblings, six or seven siblings that died uh, also. So his parents had had like 12, 13, 14 kids. Um, and he eventually built up this plumbing business in, um, in Arizona that was a multi, multi-million dollar business. I think they did like $7 million in revenue and like two or $3 million in profit. And so he, when he went to retire, he had no financial literacy. And so he just shut down the business. He was like, I'm tired. I want to go enjoy life a little bit. I want to fly my little, you know, Cessna. And, um, and so he closed down the business instead of selling it. And he could have had a, a nest egg of like anywhere from let's call it, you know, five to six to maybe even more um, in millions of dollars. And he just had no idea. And so I, I kind of was like, wow, there are all these, you know, retirees and there are all these um, business owners that don't even realize that this asset that they've spent all their life growing, they can sell because Johnny or Susie wants to be on YouTube, you know, and they don't want to run a plumbing company. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I I totally agree. And I think, you know, that's the beautiful part here too, is ownership is possible. We have this amazing thing called debt, which Mm -hmm. when I grew up, I don't know about you, AJ, but I used to think debt was bad, right? I was like, don't have debt. I have zero. I mean, I was making good money on, on Wall Street, bought houses in cash, cars in cash, like yep. an idiot, because I thought it was a good thing to have no leverage. And I didn't realize that if you have good leverage, it's just money working for you. Um, and so those are all the things like half of what I've spent my time obsessing about at Contrary and Thinking is like the uneducation of all of us. Like, yes. What do I wish not only I had learned, but what do I wish I had unlearned because it is so wrong about making money and freeing your mind? Well, and, and you're exactly right. And I love people are like, it feels like the wealthier, the rich is playing by different rules. And I'm like, no, they have the same rules. You just don't understand the rules. That's the problem. But their rules are identical. You just don't know about them. And so it's not a fact that they have, they're playing a different game. They're doing anything else like that. It's you just don't know how the game is played. So you're just, pawn in the whole thing when you could be a queen right or a king it's just like it's and it has in other countries we don't have that they actually are playing by different rules like they are completely different worlds those people live in now where did you grow up so you you mentioned your uncle here but where are you from where'd you grow up i grew up in arizona so families immigrants uh my father's family's from Spain, but I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. So like not that dissimilar to Idaho in some ways and that I think we were so lucky to have what I'm going to guess was a quasi non-traditional uh, upbringing um, because, you know, I was outside all the time. I was yes. hunting. I was, you know, in nature with my dad sort of figuring out like, what does it mean? What does mortality mean? What does it mean to take a life? What does it mean to do physically hard things? Um, I wasn't obsessed at all with social media and email and stuff being in my face because we didn't have that. And I think that's a huge, huge blessing. Um, So I feel really grateful. I think some of the best thing that we can all do is like go do hard physical things because then you realize that um, really nothing else matters. I mean, we were just talking about some of the physical stuff you've been through and continue to go through. And I mean, I just even, I was hiking this mountain a few weeks ago 
And I was dying. I mean, it was Mount Baker. We had crampons on and ice axes. And it's like a snow blizzard. I can't see it must step in front of me. We're on this line all together. People are falling in crevasses. We're like pulling people out and people are hurting their knees. I mean, it's a nightmare. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself, what am I doing? I like my life, like get off this mountain. But by the end of it, I was like, you know what? I'm so glad I did this because now I'm so much less stressed about the small everyday things because nobody's going to die. No, I, I saw that. I was reading it and I was like, I got to talk to her. That looked so awesome. Like it's that's kind of, you know, up there on my bucket list of things to do, because like you, we grew up very similar. I grew up backpacking. I grew up in the wilderness. Like when there wasn't anything to do, I went out back, took my shotgun, and I'm like, well, let's see if ducks are coming in, right? It was like just a totally different world, but I had a totally different appreciation. My summers were spent working on farms. My, I, We didn't have a farm. My parents sent me to my family farms. <laughs> so it was, you know, we did, and there was nothing in my family that is held like of higher esteem than hard work. It's like they com- we compete on it. Like, well, I, I, I worked all week last week and I was sweating and this happened, right? And then I had all these problems. Well, I didn't, I only slept five hours a night. Like it was like one upping exactly. who could work harder than the other. It was like, that was such a valuable trait. Um, and it just seems like, you know, some of those things are lost. And I love that you're putting yourself though yes. in the position. You're like, why are you on that mountain? Why are you doing that? You're doing it because it's hard and the things that you learn from it. I'm, I'm going to do that. That's on my list. I love it. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, honestly, I don't know that I'm hiking another Mount Baker, if I'm super honest. You know, I, I, <laughs> yeah. I'd be pretty authentic about, like, I'm like, go do hard things. And I do them. I'm like, well, I, I did that one, but I'm not going to do it again. Um, but, you know, I'm my nickname's Coldy. Like, I'm always freezing. So this one, you know, was a great bucket list check that I was yeah. like, you know what? First of all, I'm horrified of heights. So I don't know what I was doing climbing a giant, you know, mountain with, like, these ridges into a crater. You got to the top of Mount Baker. And there's like these sulfur fumes. It smells terrible because it's an active volcano. And then it's also a blizzard at the same time. Then you have to hike this rock face going back and forth, throwing in ice axes in it. I was like, what is going on here? But um, I do think small versions of that are super important, even if it's just going to the gym and throwing up heavy weight. Yes. I like to, mm-hmm. my little slogan is, um, you know, civilize the mind, compound the bank account, and make savage the body. And uh, I think if you can do those three things, you go pretty far. (laughs) I love that. Like, that's like something I think people need on their wall. That's awesome. That's a a good motto to live by right there. (laughs) Yeah, I try. My husband's much better at it than I am. But um, (laughs) I do think, yeah, I think it's super important. It is. And two, it's really important to set perspective. Like a lot of those things, that's that's all it does. It's like every once in a while, we need a perspective shift. We need to like refocus, realign, get back in touch, right, with reality and that there's really hard things. We can do really hard things. And this isn't the worst thing in the world. This isn't the problem that ends me. So I got to stop acting like it and I just need to move through. And that's what I love about those kind of activities and those struggles and those hard, hard things. You come out of it and it's perspective, it's confidence building. And you're like, hey, these problems that I have to tackle here are nothing. They're just not that important. So let's get them done. Let's move on. And I think that's that's needed for all of us. Yeah. And I mean, also, I mean, I, I'm like a big fan of the mentality of, you know, you can you can play the game of who's the biggest victim all day long. But at the end of the day, 
I don't think you're going to like the price. Um, so, you know, in this world today, we have lots of people playing victim. I'm a minority, you know, woman, Latina. Um, but I hate what, what people are doing to minorities in this country because I think there's no prize for labeling yourself a victim. There's a prize for saying, hey, I've been through some tough things. I have hard circumstances and I'm going to keep pushing forward. It doesn't mean I'm Sally Sunshine every day, but I'm going to keep pushing forward and I'm going to see myself as a victor every little time I have a milestone forward. Um, you know, so, so don't don't call me less than don't say I'm underprivileged. Like, no. Um, and so I, I think that change of mentality is big. And, you know, like part of the reason that, you know, we're here talking is I started contrarian thinking in like January of last year, 2020, for this exact reason. I was like, AJ, you know, all these people, one, we're isolated now. So now we can't connect as humans. Two, um, we can't have difficult conversations because of all the vitriol in the market, all the nastiness that we throw back and forth at each other. And then three, um, I think the most important thing that we can do is question everything and have debate in a really rational and kind way and let the ideas compete, you know, let the ideas be on trial, not the humans. And, um, and so like, that's been sort of my, my motto and the entire focus of my, my life the last, year and a half, almost two years, is trying to get people to think again and trying to get people to remove emotion from thinking um, and then also bringing financial freedom into the mix. Because I think you can have, if you have first financial freedom, which you know you and I have both talked about that in real estate, then that allows you to have personal freedom. Like I get to pick my day. I don't have to work with people I hate. No more asshole policy, right? And then you can get to philosophical freedom, which is I can say my beliefs and whatever I believe, and I'm not scared about the repercussions because I have financial freedom and I have a roof over my head and the family's taken care of. And so nobody can mess with that. And I, I think that's the goal. If yeah. we could get more people there, you know? No, I, I could not. That's my, my motto. I mean, if I can help people, that's the best thing you could ever help somebody with to me is financial freedom, because I'm not telling you to do it my way. I'm not telling you, you have to live a certain way. You have to be a certain way. You have to do anything. It's you need to get the resources for you so you can live your way whatever that is. It's about putting the power in you. It's about getting rid of that victim mentality. It's about you taking control. And when you help somebody do that, it's not, I'm not trying to get doing some stupid one-up game politically or, you know, all those these stupid games that people play. When you help someone achieve financial freedom or when you choose achieve financial freedom, that is true freedom of thought, mind. It's your ability to create the life that you want to live. However that is, it doesn't matter, right? Like if I help you achieve financial freedom, that allows you to live whatever life you want to live, which I don't care about. Like you do you, right? But you're right. We're in this system of victim mentality. And I just loved what you said. It's like the prize you're going to win, you're not going to like. So why are you even going after it? That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Um, that's why I think it's so cool. You know, we've connected on S, like on SMB Twitter, on finance mm-hmm. Twitter, on real estate Twitter, and I also didn't realize before the last year how valuable Twitter is. Like, I mean, if if I could push one thing, it would be like get rid. You know, just like you were, should do in your life and everything you do, get rid of everybody that you follow that doesn't add net value to your life yes. on social media, and 
Instead, follow really strategically people who are actually teaching you things. I mean, I've been so amazed. I've, you know, been investing in real estate for a while. We talked about it in the um, sort of Airbnb, short-term rental, multifamily space, just independently. And now I'm curious about storage and buying bigger pieces of land. And everything that I've learned on that subject has come from Twitter and connecting with smart people because there's so many people that give it all away for free. But then what's crazy, AJ, is I, I just like get all worked up about, um, you know, there are a lot of these trolls on on Twitter that basically are like, well, you know, if you if you talk about it on Twitter or if you sell a course or if you have a podcast or whatever, then you're probably not that good at it because that's your main focus and not the thing. And I'm like, oh my God, you're missing the point entirely. These are all, I, I know very few people on SMB Twitter that make their money from like courses or membership sites. I certainly don't make my money from that, nope. but I do it because it is, a net benefit to humans that I wish that I had. Wish somebody told me these things. Yeah. Um, so that would be it. Like people should well, go on Twitter and follow people like you and Sweaty Startup and Andrew Wilkinson, et cetera. Yeah. You know, it's funny because how I look at that is I go, at the end of the day, right, I don't have anything to sell to you. What though I get in return is you understand my mode of operation. You understand how I view value. You understand my uh, my point of view when I'm looking for opportunities. And then guess what? You pick up the phone, you call me, say, I heard you talking about this. I actually got a place in my city. Want to look at it with me? That's how I make money. I make money by making the best connections possible, partnering with the best people possible, and executing a strategy that is extraordinarily extraordinarily like profitable, safe, right? In a new way, in a new market. Those things don't come if nobody knows what I'm looking for. Those things don't come if I'm not making these connections, right? That's the whole reason I started podcasts. I literally wrote an entire book, basically just say, here's my exact model of how I do everything. If you have any opportunities that this model fits, please call me. And we got tens of millions of dollars from it. Not from book sales, not from courses, from doing deals and what we do. And so shutting yourself off to the world because you don't want to look like you're selling something, that doesn't help you and doesn't help anybody else. So by truly helping people, you get it in return always. And it's a net benefit. And I'm trying to understand still Twitter. Like, like you're doing a really good job at it. And I have a love-hate relationship with it, but just simply because I don't really know how to use it, right? So I get on there occasionally and and I like to make posts and trying to do like more long form things to talk because it's such a powerful tool and it's one that i recognize um but i haven't quite figured out yet i've been way more into other types of platforms like podcasts which that just exploded right it's like tens of thousands of listeners all the time and that mean allowed me to communicate what we're doing in the world and it attracts the right people to you and Twitter, all these other things are the exact same medium, right? It's a way for you to put yourself out and attract the right people. You just got to be good, like you said, at yep. getting rid of the wrong people. <laughs> so. Well, exactly. I mean, that's that's half the game. I think is attract the right, repel the wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I focus on that a lot. A lot of the stuff that I talk about is relatively controversial. So I'm trying to push buttons. I'm trying to make you pause for a second and have some sort of feeling or reaction. Um, and if I can do that, then maybe I can have a pattern disrupt, right? That's why they talk about when you have a fight. What should you do during a fight? You should 
like throw a towel in the up, up in the air and do a jumping jack or something because it pattern interrupts and it stops the other person from wanting to continue fighting with you. And I don't mean a fist fight. I mean like a fight with your spouse. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you can do a bizarre pattern interrupt, the likelihood of you guys continuing at the same intensity is is much less. And so it's sort of like a psych and a uh, 101. But it's I think it's the same in Twitter and in you know the newsletter where we write to people. We're, we're kind of trying to get people to stop and have a feeling or reaction to something. Because the truth of it is, everything we talk about, so you know, you talk about storage and real estate and how to build the two and how to build wealth that way. And I talk about any way under the sun that you can cash flow and contrary frameworks for you to build your life upon. And so there's lots of people that tell you how to cash flow. There are people that cover, you know, we do want like a different topic each week. And so it might be like this week was such a cool story. Two moms who uh, during the pandemic both got laid off from their jobs in Boston and uh, they rehabbed an old trailer uh, that they bought off of Etsy for like 1500 bucks and they turned it into a mobile wine truck that does like events and happy hours for like the PTA and moms and stuff like that. And uh, and now they're doing $100,000 in profit and they'll make more than either one of them made in their previous job. And so, you know, I <sighs> think so cool. you know, those cash flow ideas, yeah, it's awesome, right? But those cash flow ideas are everywhere. The difference is you have to wrap it in a bow that attracts people to it so that they'll stop, be entertained enough to keep learning. And that I think is, is the name of the game. And I think that's the, the new wave of media mm-hmm. is, you know, like I said, I think of us as an uneducation company in finance and critical thinking. And it's getting people to want to read about making money and want to read about thinking critically when normally people would rather watch Netflix, right? Okay. So I got a question for you. You know, a lot of people, let's see me get it. When you put yourself out there though, you're obviously open to lots of criticism. You're putting out ideas that inherently a um, lot of people are going to disagree with. It doesn't matter what the idea is. It doesn't matter at all. You know, a huge portion is either going to disagree with, they're not going to like it. or How do you deal with that? Because you're on so many mediums. You're blowing up on so many different ones. People are really taking hold to what you say. But generally, when you talk about controversial things, I mean, there's that I don't want to say backlash, right? But maybe uncomfortableness of people all of a sudden not even disagreeing with you. That's not because you can disagree good and uh, really well with people, but they almost attack you, right? And a lot of people are super scared of that, super nervous about that because they don't want to be challenged in that way or they know that maybe that's not right. How do you work through that? How do you get over that? Because you're very comfortable putting yourself out there. Well, I, honestly, I mean, I hate conflict. I don't like to fight with people at all. Um, but um, I think anything you can do where afterwards you go, oh, I didn't die, is usually pretty good for you. And so, um, you know, on Twitter in particular, you realize, first of all, there's a crazy phenomenon, which is when people are anonymous, they're assholes. When people are to your face, you never have that instance. So like, you know, there's plenty of people on Twitter that go back and forth and troll on different subjects. Most of it's kind of lighthearted and, and um, you know, if you banter back, like it's okay. Um, but what's amazing is when you meet people in real life, that, that's not the attitude at all. People yeah. are super nice. Yeah. They're super engaging. Yeah. And you have a 10X positive effect 
to the 2x negative on Twitter. So it's really just, you know, can you get over this feeling of needing to be liked? And I think if you can do that, you can achieve such better things. So why not get used to it on Twitter? Because who cares what strangers think of you? And if you can learn to push back against what strangers think about you and hold your own and stand up for what you believe in, then you have real beliefs, not just an echo of what everybody else is saying. Yeah, no, I... I love that. Now, I got to ask you, why did you leave Wall Street? You said you were making a lot yeah, of money. Uh, you're paying for houses and cash and everything, and then you're not you're not doing that anymore. Why? Yeah, you know, Wall Street just wasn't for me. Um, maybe it was just the firms that I was at or the time period I was at. But one, I don't like anybody owning me. And when you're in finance and when you work in, in Wall Street in particular, there's a lot of things you can't do. You are hyper, hyper regulated. So you're not allowed to be public and speak about securities or other things in the market. Um, you know, you had uh, back then I had to wear a suit and t- uh, a suit and pantyhose. I actually had to wear pantyhose my first job and I'm not that old. Um, and that was a Vanguard. And um, and then, you know, the flip side of, of it is I don't love pub- public markets because for every time I win, somebody else has to lose. Yeah. It's a zero sum game, yeah. right? If I buy, it means that some, and I'm happy about it, it means that somebody sold and maybe they shouldn't have, right? There's yeah. more upside to be had. Mm-hmm. And I don't like zero sum games and I don't think they make a ton of sense. And um, and what I realized after so many years is finance, um, it, it attracts a certain type of person, not all people. And the culture there was not one for me. And I wanted to go and be the architect of my own life as opposed to having to fit into a box. And yes. you have to fit into a lot of boxes on Wall Street. So I think it's so much smarter what, what you're doing now, what I'm doing now. In, private deals are where it's at. Yeah. Being in private deals off the public stock market where you get to, where, you know, I think the sign of wealth is not like who shows up in a Lamborghini. It's who shows up to a board meeting in cargo shorts and like Costco flip-flops because that guy has true financial freedom and doesn't care and doesn't have to show it off to anybody. Yeah. Doesn't need to fit in, doesn't need to do what anybody else is telling him. I always think about zero-sum games. I'm like, you can't scale zero. And really, when I get started out, I felt strongly that people that pay, played in the economy, zero-sum games, it is a, just a treadmill of action. Right. And that the more that you can extrapolate value through a marketplace to other individuals, as well as yourself, uh, the more touch points you can have, the easier it becomes to scale, the easier it becomes to take that value, repeat it at a known rate of return. Um, You have more inputs that support it. You have more infrastructure that wants to be around it, right? And it's interesting because zero-sum games, though, can be very profitable in the short term. But when you extrapolate value to a lot of people, over the long run, it's extreme wealth. And I think, you know, you look at like startups and entrepreneurship, there's a lot of that where they're starting up that company and they're just not making money. It's it's so hard. You're trying to get value out to the market. You're trying to inspire people. You're trying to be, but then over the long run, you build momentum, you build momentum, and then your touch points expand, and then it just becomes a massive machine. And it's the economy in that sense accepts the highest value, right? And it uses. So I, I get the zero-sum game, right? I get it because it's super profitable. I just don't think it's a very good long-term strategy. 
Yeah, I think you're right. And don't get me wrong, not all stock market stuff is like that. You know, yeah. IPOs are funding a company, mm-hmm. right? The price can continue to go up. You can buy and hold for a long time. All that I think is great. But when it comes to pure price speculation, I'm not very interested. Um, and, and I think you have to be incredibly smart to do that uh, or, you know, some sort of oracle to see the future, which is hard to have. Um, so I, I think you're right. And the other thing that's interesting is the private deals, we have such better tax structures, you know, oh, yeah. in real estate, you guys have the best, but actually private equity has incredible tax structures. Doing private deals has incredible tax structures. And when I was on Wall Street working for a firm, I mean, I was giving away damn near 50% of what I made. Uh, Mm -hmm. every dollar. And then I was living in very expensive cities like San Francisco, Chicago, New York, because those are the financial capitals of the world. And then you kind of had to keeping up with the Joneses thing. If you showed up in a Honda, that meant something. And, um, and so you have this lifestyle creep, right? Yeah. And so I think all of those these days, now we live in Austin and nobody cares, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, we show up to all meetings and tennis shoes for the most part. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, it, it's smart to kind of like learn to get away from that early. I wish somebody would have told me that earlier. And then also in finance, they don't teach you so much how to manage your own money. You learn a lot about how to manage. I managed, you know, and, and ran businesses that were billions of dollars in revenue and assets under management. And we, you know, did really well for our clients, but I really wasn't investing my own personal money very intelligently and I wasn't buying assets long-term and, um, and I would go back and do that differently now for sure. So, you know, the thing about private deals too, that I find very interesting is to me, private deals were actually less risky. And for me, the reason it was because it was control, right? I'm like, I can actually have an effect on the underlying performance of the security. So if I buy a stock, I have no say, I have no ability. I have, I have limited knowledge. But when I'm working with a private deal, whether that's me, investors, other people, investors are engaged, I can actually see, and I know that operator that I'm talking to can change the underlying fundamentals to increase value or erode value. So there's actually things that I can pick up and pinpoint. Now, I I know, of course, that private deals, if you don't know what you're doing, right, there's obviously problems and they're not saying that there's no risk or anything else, but it just never made sense to me why you would not be doing private deals because the wealthy do private deals. That's how they become wealthy. They don't become wealthy because they put their money in the stock market. Warren Buffett owns the companies. He does private contracts where he gets things done himself. He owns it. He has exact say. He controls the companies. He has majority say. That's a private deal, even though it's on the stock market, right? Um, Why do you think there's this massive hurdle? Is it just like... In finance, it's like, no, that's where you need to put your money. And you have all these financial advisors that get paid fees. So they say, this is super risky. So you need to put it with me. So I can give you a 7% return, even though inflation's eroding away half of that. So you're basically just trading water. While you can just go to a single private deal where you're generating cash flow that can create financial freedom, you get tax deductions and you're growing actual wealth that you can place. I can sell it. I can do something with it. I mean, why do you think that there's this cap? Because it seems like what is logical to me, most people think that that's actually very wrong and that that's not true at all. Why is there such a big chasm there? Yeah, I mean, look at the Peter Thiel, uh, Warren Buffett situations going on right now with self-directed IRAs, right? 
I mean, they are getting massacred in the news for billionaires take advantage of a tax structure meant for the, you know, for the everyman. And it's like, no, just because they have more money does not mean that they are not allowed to take advantage of an IRA structure. But most of us and our financial, my, I've had financial advisors for decades. I've worked with thousands of them. Never once have I had a financial advisor tell me, hey, have you thought about a self-directed IRA where you can actually go and buy assets and then you're not going to have to pay capital gain or you're not going to have to actually be double taxed on them like any other deal that you do in real estate or in even investing in other funds or in deals or companies that you buy? Nobody, I mean, nobody knows that. It goes back to your point that I loved, which was, I wrote it down, the wealthy have the same rules as us. We just don't know. We just don't know them. And so it's not that they have some special allowance in this instance. It's just that we yeah. weren't taught it. And if you, it all goes back to incentives, right? Financial advisors and, and love financial advisors. They yeah. definitely play a purpose. Um, but, you know, financial advisors have an incentive that's twofold. One, they make money on either a fee or transaction basis for things that they hold for you, right? So if I have $100,000 with them, they're going to charge me a 1% fee on that. And they're going to need all the assets to be at my company in order for me to get that 1% fee. Or they charge me based on how many times I buy and sell something. That's called uh, transaction-based financing. And uh, that's their first incentive. So they're not going to tell you to go take your money out and put it somewhere else because that would be less money in their pockets, literally. And then the second reason is if it's not on their platform and if you do self-direct it, they're actually legally not even allowed to give advice on that. So they have a disincentive to tell you to go out and do that because those are not securities that they can represent in your risk assessment. Mm. And so if they're a fiduciary, you can go after them for that if they do it. Wow. So the government has literally rigged a system to protect the little guy that tells financial advisors, keep all the money with you only and don't tell them about other options because they could sue you even though those other options could be highly tax advantaged and you can control the outcome as opposed to sitting in a mutual fund and having the market uh, have its way with your assets. Well, that comes down to like the accredited and non-accredited investors, which drives me bonkers. The government has basically said accredited investors are smart enough to see deals that non-accredited investors aren't. And you're like, what? The government's actually not allowing normal people or not normal, not wealthy people, because they don't believe they can handle it to see what are the safest and best deals on earth. And so they don't even get to see them because it's against the law to show somebody who doesn't have a million dollars of investable assets or makes like over $300,000 a year, which is the vast majority of people. So there's deals going on every day that they can't see, not because nobody wants to show them. It's not because wealthy are hiding because they'll go to prison if they do. It's exactly. and then and then exactly. the government blames the wealthy that they're somehow taking away and doing these weird deals in the back room. And you're like, we have to because I don't want to go to prison. I can't tell anybody <laughs> what I'm doing. It blows my mind. It'd be comical if it wasn't so true. And, and then, you know, simultaneously, you have people doing stock trades all over the Internet now and telling people about Wall Street, you know, Wall Street bets, the game stock, this and that. And um, and those, you know, those guys get crushed. The retail little guy always gets crushed in, those, in those trades. So, you know, the good part is, is there's so many resources today, like now more than ever, you can um 
Well, one, the credit investor uh, category has just had a few changes to it. So they've decreased a few allowances, which is nice. You can't, you don't have to be an accredited investor to buy a business or do private yes. deals or to buy private real estate, right? Just mm-hmm. to come into our syndicates, you would for if they wanted yeah. to invest with us. But you could buy a business direct on Flippa or on Biz Buy Sell, or you could buy it on e-commerce flippers, yep. and you could go and do this yourself. The problem is, is that often if you don't have some capital, that usually also means you don't have a ton of time. You're working for somebody else. You're still trading time for money. And so you need to figure out a way to invest either passively or make enough in your first or second or third investment that you can leave the thing that you're doing for time alone. And so, you know, we talk a lot about how to try to do that in one or two ways, how to leave your W-2 and then buy a business that replaces your entire W-2 income, your entire employee income. Um, And you could do that with real estate or you stack a few. Uh, But, you know, the thing is, it's simple, but it's not easy. Um, And so there's work that still comes with it as opposed to pressing buy on a button on your phone to buy a stock. So all this ties into, we have all these obscure assets and different things like that are coming out that are available to retail investors, so to speak. I got to know, what's your opinion on Bitcoin? I mean, I thought you well, want like, let's get a yeah. little controversial here. Let's say, because for yeah, some reason totally. you talk about Bitcoin and 50% of the people are mad. I don't know why it's weird, but. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Well, I, I don't, I don't speculate on, on uh, things that I can't control, like the price of Bitcoin. Yeah. So um, I have an allocation to crypto. It's basically Ethereum and Bitcoin and some smaller tokens that friends who are smarter than I am have told me to invest in different types of cryptocurrencies. Um, But besides that, I uh, really just have an allocation and I hold it. And the reason why I have an allocation today is because I'm trying to figure out as many ways as possible to have assets that have some sort of non-correlation to inflation, right? So an asset that if inflation goes up like crazy, this asset can also handle that swing and I don't get my money taken away from me like a little you know, shark nibbling at, at my money sitting in the bank account. And so, um, so Bitcoin theoretically could have that. Now, you know, it also could be shut down. It also has, you know, all of these different things that people say about the market. But I think you should probably have some allocation in your portfolio to cryptocurrencies, to real estate, to private deals and small businesses, to commodities. I like thinking about my investments, just like I would a stock portfolio. You know, I want multiple income streams, not just one income stream. And I ideally, I mean, the part that's interesting, AJ, is like most people invest their entire lives. Like, think about that. They invest their entire life, years and years and years of time spent investing. And for most people, investing will not make them financially free. They'll, they'll still, you know, they'll have a 401k, they'll have a Roth, they'll have whatever their brokerage account is, but they still will never make themselves financially free from investing. And I think that's a travesty because if you actually pay a little bit of attention to investing and do it in a thoughtful way, it is definitely possible to achieve financial freedom as a, an investor only without having to trade time for money. So that's the goal for a lot of the people that I know. Now, when you're dealing with your your everything that you're doing here, all your more open educational stuff, you're putting out all this content, you're trying to help people get to more of a financial freedom you know, point. Do you have some strategies that you just generally are your go-to? Like that you say, if, if you're starting out, we're going to go through some education and everything, but is there a, 
try and true plan. Like, of course, you know, like in real estate, they're like, oh yeah, you start here and you compound, you get cash flow, value add, you burr it, take the equity, right? There's, they have all these little strategies or these go-to things, how to be successful in certain real estates that can be applied in general. When you're talking about small businesses, are, do you have a, uh, some strategies that you think people can use? Yeah, it's a good question. So the, the thing that's different about small business than real estate, which is why it's less competitive, is real estate is really hard to do uniquely. And you know this well. Yeah. Once people figure out the, the niche that you're in, it gets gobbled up really quick. And, um, you know, you can only rehab a house so many ways and you can only flip a house so many ways. Um, you can only do so much with multifamily. With small business, the beauty of it is the options are endless because we're talking about businesses that can have innumerable revenue streams. Um, but the way that I usually like to have people start is there's like two two archetypes of people. So for the person that's just starting out and that doesn't have a ton of capital with, you know, for them thus far, I like them to start with a business that's really straightforward and easy. So I like businesses, I talk a lot about laundromats for that reason. I like a business that is so simple, it's like putting quarters in a machine, the machine runs, your client's happy, you take the quarters out at the end of the week. And what I talk about doing is the three-step process in buying a small business is, you know, first you look in your geographic area. I like people to keep their business close to them to start. So you look for businesses in your geographic area. You look for businesses that are making anywhere from, let's call it, you know, when you're first starting out, 30 to $100,000 profit that you can take home and businesses that are relatively passive to manage. Something like a laundromat could be that type of business. It could be a pool cleaning company, like a service-based business where you're just going around to people's pools or you're hiring somebody to do that. Very simplistic business. So once you find that company, then you get an SBA loan for that business, which is just like a mortgage. So you basically go, the government pays for 90% of the purchase price. So if I buy a business for $100,000, the government is going to give me $90,000 for the purchase of that business. I have to put up 10% uh, for the, the purchase of the business. And then I get to go and cash flow that business for as long as I hold it. The other avenue that I talk a lot about is seller financing, which is basically that this used to be done in real estate, as you know, but it's hard to get now from what I understand, which is for these small businesses, 60% of small businesses are sold with seller financing. So wow, um, that's a huge you want to go buy amount. 60%. Yeah. Not entirely self uh, mm -hmm. seller financed, but some percentage of it seller financed. It's hugely common. And so what you're doing is you're going and buying a small business, but the seller is paying two thirds of the purchase price and they're doing it through future revenue. And so over, you know, maybe year one, you're giving them 30% of the purchase price and year two and three, you're giving them the next 30 and then the next 30. And it's from the actual cash flow and profit of the business. And so that's how I usually tell people to start. And we have a course on this at Unconventional Acquisitions if anybody wants to check it out. There's sort of 10 steps to buying a business. Um, but the most important thing to know is that, you know, when it comes to the typical housing flip situation or buying a house and, um, you know, renting out the rooms or house hacking, you have very, very small profits on yeah. those when you first start out. Outrageously and small. So that's why, like yeah, you, I, I started, like, I was like, oh, I'm going to get into real estate. And I'm like, wait a second. I could buy, I could put, you know, $200,000 down into this real estate asset, and I'm going to make this minimal amount. Or I could go buy this cash flowing based business, 
and I can buy it at three times the value. The math alone, when you look at real estate versus a three times multiple on revenue, I can structure your debt, you can, right, your financing, you can pay yourself, you can pay your expenses, and there's still profit that is way, way bigger. But two, like you said before, I mean, you talked about the things you could do. It's about value creation. And when you're starting out, it's really important to create value. It's really important for you to create equity. It's you need a uh, momentum. You need something to create it, right? That that way you can take that and use it and compound it. That is a very hard thing in real estate because it's the market gives it to you, so it's super easy, but you don't get paid a lot for it, and it takes huge amounts of time. Where three times multiple, I could pay that off in three years. And now I own all the cash flow outright of a small service business. And I'm totally financially free in three years. That is extraordinarily difficult to do in real estate. And you don't do it in one shot. You're, you're exactly right. And where else are you going to be able to make, you know, if you invest in a business that's doing $100,000 in profit and you buy it for two hundred dollars or $300,000 for two or three X, um, that, that means that that business that you bought for $300,000 is doing at least $100,000 in, in profit. So like, where are you gonna be able to buy that type of, of real estate property? No, like you can't, you can't spend $300,000 to make $100,000 a year in real estate. No, doesn't like, exist. That's too hard. But the flip side of it is real estate, you know, is not, it, it can be very passive. And there's a playbook. The playbook is like this, it can kind of be idiot proof in a lot of real estate. In, in a small business, you have to run the business. And so you got to learn about it or you got to hire an operator. I prefer to hire operators in my business, businesses so that I don't have to run them day to day. And, um, and what I'm doing there is I'm giving somebody the opportunity to get equity, ownership, become a CEO of a business, become a co-founder of a business, and they do the work and I provide the capital. Um, and that's where you can eventually get to in part two. So the first time you're the kind of the operator, some of the money is yours up front, um, but your you're sweat's in it too. And then on the back end, your sweat's out of it, your money's in it, and you're not trading time for money. So you, you mentioned the businesses that you think individuals should buy. What businesses are you interested in? When you look at the market, where are you going? What do you want when you're looking at a business to get an operator in there, have them run it? But you obviously now provide the backing, the knowledge. They have a mentor. Um, you get to set them up right in here. So what, where, what are your targets? What are you looking for? I know it's more about profit for me. So okay. I want businesses that'll make, you know, a million bucks a year sort of profit, ideally. Doesn't have to be that, but I like that that area because um, I kind of don't want to do a deal unless I'm going to make at least six figures on the deal for the year yep. myself after expenses and operator and everything. So those run the gamut. I mean, we're looking at a sober living uh, facility. Um, I've done med spas. Um, I, I have a laundromat group, um, but it's, you know, one laundromat wouldn't be, wouldn't be enough. Um, landscaping businesses, roofing businesses. But the key is really the business is big enough from a profit perspective for me to put a really good operator in there and and then back out. And then I also just want to do businesses that I think are good for the world um, in some way, shape or form. So I would be I would be cautious and thoughtful about what type of businesses I, I invested in. Yeah. 
I, okay, I love those because you probably just said businesses that everybody would have never expected, right? They're like, okay, so w- w- what tech company are you doing? Or, you know, are you doing some big thing? And it's, and I, I love that because that's how I got started. I got started in insurance, self-storage. Like they're the most boring asset types in the world. You sell insurance and I was renting units, right? That were just boxes to people, but that's where the money was. And we looked at it like you were looking at it. I need a certain X times multiple. It needs to be operated. I need to be able to create value. And then what we did is out of our businesses, we spurred that in to real estate and other assets that would hold, create value, give us tax breaks. Because like you, our, our businesses, we had, well, you know, almost lost half our money. And so we had the ability, though, to do that then. That was through those service-based businesses. It That provided us to create a machine that could give us tax benefits and everything else. But it was nothing that anybody would, first of all, nobody's running to, right? And if the average age in the business that I was in when I was in it was 58. That was 15 years ago, and that was the average age because it was such a boring business, right? So I just love that contrarian way of thinking. Like, forget about the business. Like, it, it doesn't matter. You don't need Instagram. You need profit. That's what you need. And I, and for some reason, people just look over it because it's not trendy or whatnot, but that's where the value is. So I think that's awesome. Um, I think people are waking up to that. I always get excited when I see a business still has a fax machine. I'm like, oh oh, yes, we are going to have some fun with this one. Yeah. When I started out, it was yellow pages. So how do you advertise yellow pages? I'm like, and here's my checkbook. So let's, uh, let's do this. <laughs> I was like, like, I haven't seen the yellow pages in a long time and that's how you're marketing. Okay. This is going to be a great deal. <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah. Or maybe none of them are marketing at all. I mean, my joke is always like, you know, the business, like the, the lawn landscaping guy that you see with, you know, his truck out front that charges you a hundred bucks a month to do your lawn or whatever. Um, that business is printing money. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, landscaping businesses are a little tougher because, um, the population is transient. It's tougher to get employees. Mm-hmm. They move around a lot. Um, but once you get a little bit more scale and have systems and processes, and like to your point, if you can get a if you can get a landscaping business that is on an app and the tech is enabled every single time, and you can have like add-ons and you have incredible service, then you can keep a moat around those clients. But mm-hmm. um, but yeah, that that's one that's you can do it. But those aren't always my favorite businesses. No, I love it. Well, I got to tell you, I could literally just talk to you all day. So I, I don't want to take up all your time. Um, and I, I know you're you're very, very busy and I'm terrified of your husband. So with that said, <laughs> we will end this. <laughs> but hey, Cody, where can everybody go to find out more about you? I mean, your uh, newsletter and everything, which is incredible. I mean, this, like this, all this value you were giving in the podcast, you give everywhere. That's the crazy thing. It's, it's just like nonstop value you're putting out on Twitter, on on Instagram. Um, so where should people go? I think the best place is probably the newsletter, contrarianthinking.co. On it, you'll have Instagram, you'll have Twitter, um, but get into the ecosystem because, you know, long form thoughts, I think equal long-term pay. Um, you can kind of get lost on Instagram and Twitter. So mm-hmm. I think the newsletter is the name of the game and we have playbooks for basically everything we're talking about. We'll entertain you, but we'll teach you. And hopefully if you take action, uh, you'll, you'll see your life change. Awesome. Well, hey, I really appreciate the time that you've spent with us and uh, everything you've brought to the table and the value you brought to the audience because it was awesome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And I'm going to 
Peggy to have you on the podcast again. So it's going to happen. Totally. <laughs> but Love thanks. It. And Love we'll it. have you on soon. Okay. Sounds good. See you.